Welcome back to New Books and Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I welcome Nicole Myers Turner to discuss her new book, Soul Liberty The Evolution of Black Religious Politics in Post Emancipation Virginia, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2020. Dr. Turner is an assistant professor of religious studies at Yale University. Her nuanced case study of Virginia churches during Reconstruction combines archival sources, geographic informational systems mapping, and rich sources in history, political science, law, and religious studies to challenge our assumptions about the intersection between Black religion and politics in the post-emancipation period. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Hi, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed reading this book, uh, especially this week, and um, I appreciate you having taken the time to come talk to us about it. Tell me how you came to to write this project and to find these really interesting people and places that you describe in the book. And so the the project really, I started my research looking at Black churches and uh, Black church minutes and association minutes. Uh, because I wanted to foreground the narrative of Black churches and what they were doing. And I came to those sources through the historiography, through reading other historians who had written about Black religious institutions and Black social organizations, uh, sorry, Black church organizations uh, like James Washington and Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, both of whom use the Baptist Convention minutes in their narratives of Black church development. Uh, but I also knew about uh, the readjuster movement because I had uh, my, one of my advisors and a colleague who, uh, knowing my interest in Black religion and politics, said, you have to see this record from the Mahone collection where he has this um, this uh, collection of churches that he canvassed and got information about. And so, and it's a really fascinating document uh, because it's a, a notebook essentially where on one side Mahone had listed the names of um, former Confederates who had served with him. And on the flip side, he had the names of the ministers from the churches that he, the black ministers from the churches that he had canvassed. And so it really sort of pulled together in a very powerful way, something that was a question for me about how could, you know, black people in the post-emancipation period form this type of political alliance. Uh, and so it sort of came together from two directions, one sort of thinking about the historiography of Black religion, and the other one thinking about this very interesting case in in Virginia. And so that's kind of how I came to um, this particular set of sources. Before we get to the case, and the case is amazing, and the characters are terrific, um, there are three versions of this book that is unusual. And uh, you describe in the sort of in the preface uh, why it is that you came to have this many versions of the book and why it was so important to you to make a turn to the digital humanities. And I was wondering if you could just tell people a little bit about the versions and why you came to to have them. Thanks so much for this question. And and so hearing it in terms of versions, I want to dispel the idea that there's anything. Uh, distinctive about the content of the three different versions. They're all telling the same story, but it's the way that they're being told that is distinctive and or, or creates the different versions. So the first version is just a regular print version of the book. Um, and it, you know, has all the pieces and parts of a book, uh, including the argument and the images and the maps uh, that I used as part of my research and also as part of narrating the development of Black religious politics. Um, but then there's also just a regular ebook version where someone who, you know, uh, who's using an e-reader can access the same version, uh, same layout of the text. And then the third version is an open access ebook version that uh, is published in conjunction with Fulcrum Press. So it's a collaboration between University of North Carolina Press and Fulcrum Press, uh, where the version 
there actually has interactive maps and interactive maps to the extent that one can go and see the maps that I've produced in the book and then be able to toggle on and off the different layers of information that are displayed on the map. And the reason that, um, one of the reasons why I was able to do this is I was already working on a digital project to companion to the book because I knew a couple of things about uh, Black history, Black religious history, uh, and the archive. And that is that oftentimes the records that are, are most useful for research in African-American history are not readily available. And since I was encountering so much information about individuals and about these various associations, and I was having to transcribe lists and lists of names and conventions and all of this, um, that I wanted to make that information readily available to others who might be interested in researching some of the same questions or different questions. Um, The other piece of it was that as I was, um, when I encountered the uh, Mahone notebook with the Confederate the list of Confederates on one side and the list of the um, churches on the other, it struck me that it was really just a list (laughs) of names of uh, people and places. And it didn't tell me on its face much more than what I already knew about uh, the intersection that Mahone had in fact tried to gather this information. And so one of the first things that I wanted to know was, well, how, where, where are these people? Like, how do I sort of get a visual image of, you know, what is the scope of this project that he undertook. And so the first thing that came to mind for me was to map uh, the locations of these churches or get a sense of the landscape on which he was operating. Um, And as I started to use that as a method, because Mahone actually is not uh, alone in the practice of cataloging and listing the names and locations of churches and individuals, Um, the associations did the same thing. And and as I was kind of going through 30 years of different convention minutes and lists of names and churches, I I really needed a a more robust way to get a a, a visual image of the landscape of community that was being built through the associations. And so in that sense, uh, that sort of led me to this practice, to the approach of using uh, geographic information systems to actually map the locations of churches. GIS or geographic information systems allows you to make create different layers of information. So one layer might reflect the locations of churches. Another layer might reflect the um, uh, election returns. Another layer might reflect um, some other piece of data that one wanted to gather about the community. And so uh, this came to be quite a, a project a project to be able to not only just locate where the churches were, but also to be able to see changes over time in the different landscapes that were being mapped through these uh, list-making practices. Uh, and so that led to me led me to having to figure out a way to create a dynamic set of mapping practices. And so I started working on a digital project to make this information readily available, to make it easier to access these changing landscapes of churches and uh, political networks. And it was just my great luck that my editor at UNC Press was interested in hearing more about what I was trying to do with that mapping project. And they were just beginning this collaboration with Fulcrum um, that would allow for uh, an interactive book. Uh, and so that is kind of how we came to this third version of the book that is an interactive book and in that it has uh, it, it's a digital version, but it has these maps where you can actually toggle on and off the different layers so that you can, so the reader can better see the kind of argument that I'm making about the relationships between Black church networks and the political networks that uh, William Mahomes is trying to construct. So those are the three versions of the book. <laughs> All the same text, there's different ways of interacting with it. No, and it's terrific. And I'm not a GIS person, and I see I see the the letters GIS, and I I associate it with other kinds of projects that friends of mine do that have nothing to do with archival work. But the way that you explain it in the preface makes it so clear how this technique allowed you to take what looks like a list and interpret it in a much more sophisticated way. So I, what I really appreciated was the, the way you described the why for somebody like me who isn't 
a digital humanities person. So thank you for that. Thank you. I also want to point out that your acknowledgments might be the best ones I've ever seen. Uh, I always read the acknowledgments first. I find it interesting to see who who were the colleagues of this person? Uh, do they go to conferences? What? It, how is it? What's their writing process like? And I, I just wanted to say that there are new authors out there who need a an example of how you would graciously, comprehensively, and articulately thank the people who supplied you with money and inspiration and opportunity to exchange ideas. Yours are a really one of the one really great examples of how to do that. So thank you for writing those as well. It was just, I, they were terrific. Oh, wow. That's, thank you. Um, it was a really important practice for me to keep track of kind of all of what goes into making, uh, making this work work. Um, and all the people, uh, who played an, an important role in, um, supporting me, throughout this long journey. <laughs> it's been long. Sure. Uh, All of these great projects are long journeys. And, and it's hard to remember the people who did things, especially early in the project. And I, what I just appreciated was the way you described what so many of us do to create great work. And sometimes we forget all of those layers. Um, mm-hmm. You've mentioned Mahone and the funders and the readjusters, and we have a very wide audience from all around the globe, many of whom are not as familiar with this as obviously you are. So let's let's take a step back to the start of this um, story that you're telling, and c- can you can you situate us all in this? place in Virginia, which which I should mention, you do not make the claim in the book that this particular uh, uh, exploration explains everything about Black religion, Black churches, Black leadership, everywhere else. You're just trying to give us this really deep and nuanced look at this place. But can you bring us to that place and give us some of the characters and l- let us let us know what's going on and why it's so important? Sure. Uh, And so the book is a look at Black religious institutions in the south side, uh, south side of Virginia. So the southern part of the state uh, where Petersburg and Richmond and several of the south side counties where the Black Belt of Virginia is located. And the story is really an attempt to uh, narrate the ways that Black religious institutions became uh, centers of political organizing because it starts in the immediate post-emancipation period. So in 1865, the book is looking at what are, what is the state of Black religion and Black people and churches in 1865, uh, which is um, Black people and formerly enslaved people now moving into a moment of freedom that doesn't have a lot of definition yet because a lot of the civil rights uh, laws have not yet been passed. Uh, and so it's looking at, so how are they navigating? What did the landscape look like uh, in terms of churches and buildings? And then moving us through ways that uh, Black uh, political engagement changes across the three decades after emancipation. So with the changes of um, uh, of not just emancipation, but the um, beginnings of civil rights and voting rights and then how do Black churches become these places of interest for a political organizer and politician like William Mahone, who um, starts out as um, a conservative in the political landscape and then eventually becomes the uh, sort of center of gravity in uh, Republican politics um, and then ultimately in creating a fusion movement of um Black and white voters um, called the readjusters uh, that effectively achieves the reconstruct what we would think about as reconstruction kinds of policies uh, in Virginia, um, and so that's the sort of broad scope of the the, the project. 
Um, and like I said, we start in this moment in 1865, looking at Black churches and uh, the pursuit of property and um, how they're starting to assemble themselves uh, as communities with, with a measure of freedom. So what does that look like, that, that beginning of assembly, and what's the connection to, to property? Mm-hmm. So the beginning of the assembly is uh, looking at the moment when Black folks are emancipated into, into uh, freedom, and they actually have church property that they contributed money to uh, establishing, to building, and then having to negotiate uh, for the uh, legal title to that property um, with uh, white trustees of the churches um, and trying to, to trying to secure that that uh, just trying to secure that property um, and so that's one part of the landscape and there's also um, part of the landscape of having missionaries uh, come down to Virginia. Um, as many missionaries from the northern states did after emancipation to help assist the freed people, um, you had missionaries come down to parts of Virginia and uh, attempt to establish churches. And, you know, some of the people that I talk about here in the book are women who are at leading congregations and holding um worship services that uh, bring them to the attention of Freedmen Bureau agents because um, there is a emerging tension between the churches uh, and the worship services that were being led by these women that would run sometimes into late hours of the night and uh, and the employers of the people who were participating in these services uh, running into the late hours of the night. And so there's another sort of dynamic there where um, part of what's taking place is new churches are being formed, new communities are being formed, um, separate from, autonomous from former from, from white leadership. Um, and so that's the beginning of a landscape where um, oftentimes when people write about this era of reconstruction, there's a discussion of the lack of property that uh, most uh, formerly enslaved people had access to. And that's largely accurate in terms of uh, black folks not having uh, ownership of personal land and property um, as a result of emancipation. But one of the things that they did have that's often overlooked in my reading of the literature is the fact that black folks actually own churches and that they had contributed money to uh, establishing these churches and that they had this struggle uh, in the immediate post-emancipation period to um, to secure that property. Um, and so that's the sort of beginning landscape uh, where African-American people, newly freed people are trying to establish their autonomy um, in relationship to their property uh, in churches. And it's interesting in that chapter about how on the one hand, they're negotiating with each other and they're not a unified group. They, in some cases, were at different churches coming together mm-hmm. and they're also negotiating with, as you've already said, white trustees or uh, other churches in the denomination that are uh, that are white. And so it's a sort of a fascinating mix of things that are happening all at once. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and, and that is the, the other really interesting dynamic of doing the kind of study that I did with looking at a place like Virginia, where rather than taking a sort of um, a singular denomination and focusing the story through the lens of a denomination by looking at the geographic space of Virginia and the political landscape of Virginia, all of these different dynamics emerge, right? So like you pointed out, some of this is about Black folks negotiating within their own churches um, or uh, within their own community churches to create new spaces. So um, in this study, I um, discovered the Reform Zion. Well, initially it was the Zion Union Apostolic Church, which is a holiness church that becomes the Reform Zion Union Apostolic Church. Um, But it's formed out of uh, Episcopalians and Baptists who sort of left their white, uh, predominantly white denominations and united together to form their own denomination. Um, And in other instances, I'm looking at, you know, uh, Black Baptists who were initially part of uh, 
of a biracial or interracial church and then sort of split off to form their own uh, black church. Um, and then there's also the dynamics that happen within the Methodist church where there's similar sort of splits between um, black folks who were worshiping under the auspices of white trustees and then kind of create their own separate independent black uh, churches. And so there's all these different dynamics going on in the place that makes it a really interesting and I think a much richer depiction of the development of Black uh, churches and Black politics in this time. So you've already touched on this, but the second chapter looks at uh, these church conventions. And first, if you could just tell us a little bit about how you have this information, the kind of notes, the, the kind of records that were kept, which I actually think is a sort of fascinating backstory of the entire book. Um, but just tell us a little bit about chapter two and how and this, th- by this point, we're in uh, the eight, 1866 to 1868 of, of what's happening and also how you were able to know what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I want to say first that, yes, I think this story or this study for me is also about the archive and how much I wanted to draw attention to the archive of Black religion uh, and in the particular case of the conventions. So this is an amazing trove of information about Black religious life of the 19th century. The Baptist associations kept minutes of their annual regional associations and state associations. Um, Some of them complete, you know, from 1860, whatever year they were founded, up till the turn of the 20th century, which is where I was looking, but some of them go way beyond. Some of them are more sparse and you may have a few years here or there. Um, But essentially they are these collaborations and collections of individual black churches that united into, like I said, regional or sometimes state level associations where they would meet annually. The regional associations tended to meet in May while the state associations tended to meet later in the year and they would come together and their mission was really about supporting each other in their faith, right? In their walk. Um, And so they attended to things like uh, creating an education committee that would focus on Sunday schools and creating ways for people to be educated in the doctrines of the faith. They had committees um, that focused on obvious things like finances and ways to kind of raise money. They had a strong emphasis on missionary work, on, on again, the sort of building of the faith by evangelizing other believers and so other people to become believers. And so this is a large part of the work that they were doing. Uh, but every now and again, you will get a flavor of what was happening in the political landscape, whether it was a mention of you know something that was happening with a particular a set of decisions that a judge might be involved in or the courts, um, or they might talk about the state of uh, black, the Black community and Black America and kind of what is their perspective on what's taking place. Or um, they would have conversations about whether or not uh, churches and ministers should even be involved in politics as things became more complicated uh, in the later parts of the landscape and trying to understand, you know, what role churches might take. Some of these conventions took the side that people should stay out of politics. Others decided that people should participate as their contents led them. But ultimately, these records provide a very rich view of um, the life of these conventions and what kinds of issues they were facing uh, and how they interacted with the political landscape. One of the things that I draw out from them is the ways that they were modeling their ability to participate in formal electoral politics. Um, These were one of the first sites where um, formerly enslaved and free Black people could put themselves in the role of constitution writers. They could put themselves in the role of a president of an organization uh, or a treasurer or a secretary. Um, And so in these associations, they make the arguments that they are the ones most qualified to do the work among the free people, but they also make the case that they are capable of participating in electoral politics in the larger body politic by doing it by having all these structures in place where they exhibit their abilities to govern 
uh, govern themselves and their organizations. And so that's really the sort of centerpiece of um, making the case for political participation um, that takes place in these early years after emancipation. So one maybe easy question, one maybe a little harder. So when they went to court to deal with these property claims, uh, did the courts and judges deal with Black folks fairly and uh, equitably? And that's the easy one. And then the other one has to do with continuity. One of the things I found fascinating about the book is how often when we read about Reconstruction, it's as if it just happened and the curtain came down or the curtain went up. And here we see much more continuity between what was happening before the end of the war in terms of churches and after. And we see these multiple layers of continu- of, of, of um, community, of religious community. They're not all the same. And then eventually politics. And I'm just wondering if I got that right or and you would say there was continuity or I, that's a misreading. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question about the uh, ways that the courts handled the issues around property. So in the era, that, in the early part of the book where I'm looking at uh, the property issues, it's largely, I'm looking at the ways that the Freedmen's Bureau tried to help facilitate uh, or how, the role of Freedmen's Bureau. Let me start that over. In the second part, uh, sorry, the, let me start that over. Okay. So to so the question of what, how the courts responded to the attempts to uh, gain control of the property. What I'm looking at in the early part of the book is the role the Freedmen's Bureau played in those negotiations. And um, on one level, um, the Freedmen's Bureau was, the actual name of it is the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands. And so the, the Freedmen's Bureau was supposed to be able to administer abandoned lands. So any uh, for former Confederate or Southern person who left land, the Freedmen's Bureau would gain control over. One of the things that's really interesting is that, A, in Virginia, there was not a lot of, in this particular region, South Side, there wasn't a lot of abandoned land to be administered. And then on top of that, the Freedmen's Bureau never really had um, the legislative authority to redistribute land or anything like that. And we know, you know the, the failures of Sherman's plan of 40 acres and a mule because the Freedmen's Bureau never had the authority to administer it. That said, um, you know, the ways that the Freedmen's Bureau tried to help negotiate, you know, between the the churches and the uh, black churches and the white church leaders was not always um, really helpful or in the interest of the churches. And part of this is, I think, in part because a lot of the Freedmen's Bureau agents weren't necessarily there because they were intended to be advocates uh, of free people, um, but they were more, you know, parts of a process. Um, and so I think that's the, that, that's the kind of landscape of, um, of sort of what happened in terms of negotiating the land issues in churches in that early period. Um, and I'm sorry, I forget your second question. Uh, no, it had to do with continuity. I think continuity. you answered it. Oh, in the courts as to whether they were dealt with fairly in the courts. Right. Um, the sec- so the question of continuity, um, I think in the, um, in terms of the ways that a lot of the churches and associations were running, there is continuity because whether um, Black people were operating in um, biracial co- uh, churches, they would have seen, and this is sort of churches with black and white people, they would have participated in similar types of associations. So um, they would have participated in associations that had uh, constitutions and things like that. So there is some holdover from the ways that black people in the associations um, operated um, prior to emancipation and after. But what's obviously distinctive is that now they're doing it independently. Now they are cons- uh, creating those spaces for themselves. And what I think is important is that they articulate that, you know, they have these skills, they have the ability to, you know, run their organizations to, you know, carry out voting and all these things. Um, and it is something that was extant, you know, prior to emancipation, that skill set, those abilities were present. 
Um, I think I say in the book that I, I can't tell you how broadly, you know, distributed those skills are and those kinds of things, but we can certainly see by the uh, very existence of these associations and conventions um, and the ways that they were running, that they did have some skills and pre-existing skills um, prior to emancipation. Um, but I think there's also an, an important question about then. So when does the change come or what changes do come? Um, and I think that points to, you know, what happens once black men or black men gain the right to vote. And then how do black churches start to change the ways that they engage in politics, right? That they start to change from um, just making a case by their very existence, by the ways that they, um, by the ways that they uh, organize and run their organizations to what do they actually do when black men have the right to vote? How do they engage in the political landscape? No, I enjoyed that part so much. You mentioned men getting the vote, uh, and the 15th Amendment allowed all men to vote, um, which then placed black men in a very different place than black women in terms of opportunity. But in the next chapters of the book, you really try to deal with um well, first of all, a general issue in the study of religion um, and Christianity in particular about the dominance of women as a churchgoer, but the men as generally leaders and as ministers, you really want to approach this very, very differently. And you, you want to think about women's agency within that paradigm. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you see gender fo- functioning and how you see women's agency. Yeah, um, this was another really important aim of the book uh, to highlight this this theme of sort of the gender dynamics of religious leadership and by talking about women's agency and also by talking about the ways that um, black manhood is constructed in these spaces as well. Right. And so it's kind of looking at both sides of these developments. And so one of the things that I, one of the cases that I came across um, really, I think illustrated the ways that uh, gender roles were being constructed in black church communities. And I emphasize the idea of construction, right? That they were created. They were not always, it was not predestined that Black churches would sort of center around a minister's leadership, nor was it predestined that the church would center around male ministerial leadership. Um, And so one of the cases that came across at um, Gilfield Baptist Church in Petersburg um, came through their um, records of their meetings and their discipline meetings. And while I noticed a lot of different issues that the discipline meetings dealt with, um, one the one that uh, drew my attention the most had to do with dealing with cases of unwed pregnancy. Um, the church initially had a practice of, you know, as most churches did, of punishing a woman who was pregnant out of wedlock. Um, and then for a brief moment, the church turned to allowing the woman who was pregnant out of wedlock to name the person who impregnated her. And this was, you know, a practice that, you know, survived for a couple of years until a very particular case um, was contested where a woman had named her guilty, what they called the guilty partner. Um, but it was contested. And so this produced a lot of tension within the community about how this woman was able to name the person who impregnated her and you know, um, and, and what that was going to mean. And, um, the church basically ended up, you know, reversing their policy of allowing the woman to name her partner at the direction of the minister who felt that, uh, it was something that, you know, should be left to God to decide. Um, and what struck me about this moment though, was that there was this moment where the church had moved to this seemingly more democratic process of allowing the woman to name the person who impregnated her, that it would become something that was uh, shared in terms of responsibility. Uh, And it was essentially shut down by the minister and and sort of looking at the ways that this 
process could be changed, I think is illustrative of the ways that sort of the dynamics around gender, gender roles came to be. So in this particular case, you know, it's a church community that was um, one of the leading congregations. Uh, It was a church community that had male uh, members, including the pastor who had uh, been elected to political office. Um, And I think that they were sort of responding to some of the pressures of the time to present a particular kind of um, face of Black life and, and, and Black sort of respectability uh, that led some of the response and allowed this, the minister to sort of gain this um, defining role in the church community. But also uh, they are appealing to sort of biblical reasons why, you know, a, a church community should not, uh, should try to um, diminish the, the amount of um, conflict in these kinds of decisions. And so, uh, you know, by saying that God should, 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 should deal with the other guilty person in this particular case, um, and by, you know, sort of squashing that, uh, type of, um, that by squashing that type of uh, tension within the community also allowed the minister to become this kind of figure who was a decider who, you know, became the kind of central figure in the church that they would, um, that the church members would listen to. And this is a different take on, you know, how Black ministers operated in church communities that I think we've seen, where particularly in Baptist traditions, the emphasis has always been on the role of the congregation in, you know, deciding the minister and in, um, the minister having to sort of respond to the desires of the congregation, right? Because in the Baptist tradition, the church calls the minister and the the church decides, you know, if the minister is going to continue. But in this particular instance, we see that that dynamic is not really, you know, that that's not the operating dynamic. This community is making a set of decisions that's very different than what we might traditionally expect. Um, And so in that way, I think we can start to see how, uh, these gender roles are being created in spaces um, and through these kinds of um, conflicts and, um, uh, and and the ways that they are resolved. Um, and so that's part of it. And then it's also in looking at uh, the ways that um, through theological education is another way that sort of Black manhood is established as the sort of framework of negotiating political power. Uh, so in the fourth chapter, I look at the formation of a divinity school in Petersburg, um, where the first students are males, um, and the, the, only the men are the ones allowed to sort of pursue the higher levels of education to be trained to become ministers. Some of this is inflected by the ways that you know, so the broader structures of the church, you know, in this case, the Episcopal church, um, determine who can be in those roles. But I think the ways that education develops on the um, post-emancipation landscape is one where, again, we sort of see these models of um, co-ed education for formerly enslaved people, um, where men and women, boys and girls are, you know, attending school and trying to become educated for uh, life after emancipation and for themselves. Um, but the echelon or the level of education in terms of theological education is something that was, you know, foreclosed to women. And so it's by looking at the ways that theological education is established and that it becomes a space where Black men are trained to become um, educated in the same ways that white male leaders are. They have access to the same kinds of linguistic education and exegetical education and all these kinds of things. Um, put places them in a place, uh, in a role where they can um, become the leaders who then help broker opportunities for women in terms of women's education and things like that. So again, it's sort of looking at these um, processes, these um particular cases where we can start to see a set of gender roles being uh, crafted that I wanted to draw attention to uh, in these, through these particular cases. Um, what, what effect, or uh, that, that's too much of a, that, that's a ridiculous question. What impact is the, are the changes that are happening politically, the passage of 
civil rights legislation, the impact of the enfranchisement of Black men in these communities having on this dynamic of negotiating, building, creating these gender dynamics? So um, this is another sort of interesting element because, you know, when the 15th Amendment is passed, it's uh, allowing Black men to gain the right to suffrage. um, And Black women do not obviously have the ability to vote for themselves, but they do have, um, through their communities, the opportunity to influence Black male voters and Black male voting. And so... um, skipping ahead a little bit, you know, we do see, you know, when John Mercer Langston, who's the first African-American elected to the U.S. Congress from Virginia, uh, runs his campaign, he does have Black women participating in supporting his effort. Um, And he says uh, something along the lines of, you know, when a Black man wasn't sure of, you know, how to vote or how to participate, there was always a, you know, educated and informed black woman to help him figure it out. And you can read that in a couple of ways. One being very, you know, practical and saying, you know, by having education and being able to read and things like that, black women were able to facilitate the process, which you could also read that as um, enforcing a particular position, you know, and, and ensuring that black men represented their vote too, right. And that they, um, they could help guide the black man to the pro- appropriate choice politically. Um, but essentially what that did though is, you know, sort of black women had to find other ways of being influential in the political landscape. Um, and on the flip side, that black men often become the sort of central, central figures that we can see operating on the political landscape. Um, and this was one of the things that, um, really struck me as I was going through the Mahone records and looking at, uh, the, you know, the, archival record of participation in politics uh, and looking at, in particular, the ways that he handled um, appointments, because Mahone goes on to become um, the appointed U.S. Senator from Virginia. He gains control of the patronage for the state and um, was was something that was unheard of for a freshman or first year uh, senator to gain that much political power, but that he goes on to be able to make appointments. And I was going through the list of appointments and the letters from people sort of requesting appointments uh, for various positions. And there were obviously black men and they were obviously white men and there were even white women, but there were no black women that I was able to come across who were writing for positions of appointment nor who received any. And so this is one of those moments where it's like, wow, you know, really in this moment, black men have the most visible um, political representation and they're the ones who have to kind of carry the political weight um, for the community um, in this, in this moment, because black women just are not, you know, sort of present in the archival record. Let's talk just a little bit about the end of the book and um, how Langston becomes Virginia's first black congressman in 1890. Um, And you, you, even though black women can't vote, you portray the churches themselves as, as agents in his victory. So they are playing this kind of indirect role. So just tell us a little bit about, about his election to Congress, um, which doesn't happen again for a hundred years afterwards. Um, tell, and, and yeah, tell us a little bit about the last chapter about this politics of engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, so the, the churches do play um and women as part of the churches, as part of the associations, play an important role in um, sort of establishing these networks. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> women play an important role in establishing these uh, networks of um, belonging um, where these associations, by virtue of the ways that they are sort of cataloging their members, keeping track of how many people are in the churches, that they really are sort of developing a very robust sense of 
who they are, who and how many they are and where they are. That is um, something that can, that becomes politically of interest to someone like Mahone, who's trying to mobilize voters. Um, by virtue of their regular meetings, these associations also become, you know, sort of brokers of belonging where, you know, people sort of understand uh, their sense of belonging to community by participating in these meetings, these gatherings that would take place every year. Um, and so in this way, these churches are becoming really robust centers of political engagement, even if they're not sort of specifically engaging politics. But um, in that way of gathering information and gathering together, they become politically significant. Um, And this is something that we start to see operating in the campaign of uh, John Mercer Langston, who, again, he was, you know, um, uh, you know, a Black political leader, someone who um, was able to become... um, a sort of a candidate for the uh, congressional seat in part because he was able, he was, you know, a wealthy um, former you know, free black person uh, sort of before emancipation. He had enough money to be able to uh, buy his own town, his own hall where he could have his um, political speeches. Um, he was able to draw together networks of church ministers um, who were supportive of his endeavor. And as they started to come together um, to argue for Black political um, equality, I mean, they really started to, in, 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 in some of the community um, organizations in the churches, started to argue that Black people should be able to hold every level of office. Um, this was something that was obviously true and obvious in 1865 and 66 when the associations were being formed. And by 1888, when John Mercer Langston was running for office, it was even more apparent. And so they were making the argument already for Black people to hold office at every level. And um, at the same time that they they were experiencing pushback from uh, William Mahone, who uh, wanted to have maintain control over, you know, leadership at the highest levels. Um, But John Mercer Langston, again, was able to sort of um, marshal his own resources and the community resources to um, participate in the election. One of the other things that he did was he was able to um, basically organize his own machine where he had um, people who were out poll watcher people who were poll watchers who were out sort of cataloging all the people who came out to vote uh, were able to provide and were ultimately able to provide testimony to the contested election committee of the U.S. Congress um, when after the 1888 election the election board reported that uh, Langston's uh, opponent won when in fact it uh, Langston was able to demonstrate by, um, by uh, providing the records that the poll watchers kept that he had actually had a lot more people show up, uh, turn out to vote and things like that. Um, so in this particular instance, um, we see that there are ministers who are supportive. They're not necessarily out at the forefront of, you know, um, uh, they're not necessarily out at the forefront of the electoral campaign and things like that, but they were supportive of his um of his run. And importantly, they were part of conversations that were framing the ways that Black people uh, could think about the need for leadership at every level. Um, There were Black church members who were part of organizing in their wards and in their uh, areas to catalog voters, and that this record keeping became important to the electoral camp, to his uh, contested election case. Um, And so there are all these ways that Black churches are, you know, sort of playing important political roles in this moment that we would lose sight of if all we wanted to see was a minister out front making a speech or a minister meeting with a particular elected official, right? But there are these all these very nuanced ways that Black churches are suffusing this political moment where you have um, the result being uh, the first Black elected official uh, at the uh, federal level, at the national level as a result. It's a dramatic ending. I I felt I felt really pulled through that because it is. It's 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 like a, a a political. It's it's a political triumph, and you've built all of these 
layers to, to get us there. Um, there's so much in this book that readers will just have to buy the book to, to access, but I, I don't want to end without asking you about the title. So what is soul liberty? Where's the term come from? And, and what do you mean by it? What do you want to leave us with? Um, okay, so Soul Liberty comes from the founding of the, one of the associations, the Baptist Associations in Virginia, and they're drawing on the language of um, Rhode Island founder Roger Williams, who talks about the um, one of the sort of main um, sort of aims of that colony was to provide a space of soul liberty um, for that uh, for for the people there, and. It's such a great parallel to the moment of emancipation, right? This moment of soul liberty where there is freedom um, down to one's soul, down to one's core being um, is what is being sought. And it's religious freedom. It is um, about righteousness. It's about equality. It's about justice. Like it is all of those things rolled into one. So it's not just like a, you know, uh, a freedom to do as one might wish. And it's not just a freedom to uh, worship in one's own churches, although it is that, uh, and it is that importantly, uh, but it's also about equality and justice and about sort of being able to pursue all of these things and being able to receive and to recognize, to realize uh, equality and justice. Um, and in the course of the study, you know, we see that it's a complicated you know, sort of an evolution of what those things can mean, depending on, you know, um, in any particular moment, if one is able to vote or not able to vote. Uh, We see it's a complicated expression. And and we think about what it means for um, Black women to have soul liberty, that in some ways that is actually curtailed over the course of this study uh, and over the course of this period. Um, But it is nevertheless um, this really robust pursuit of, you know, of all of these, you know, sort of uh, goods of freedom and equality and justice um, in the course of the uh, existence and the sort of new emergence of Black churches uh, in the post-emancipation period. It's it's a great title and uh, it's a terrific book. Uh, what What is your next project? What are you working on now? I know you just, this just came out, but... <laughs> Yes. Um, so I am in the process of um, refining and, and thinking through a little bit more about theological education and politics and reconstruction. Uh, and then after that, I'm interested in pursuing um, more of a look at the intersections of religion and movement and um and power; those are my sort of key themes. But I'm looking at the um, the uh, abolitionist movement and fugitive movements and emancipate. I'm sorry, and emigration. So, kind of pulling all those three themes together to see what we can learn more about the role of religion in uh, shaping ideas about freedom and movement. So, oh, that's terrific. Well, when you're finished with that book, you'll have to come back. Thanks. Um, Nicole's book is Soul Liberty, The Evolution of Black Religious Politics in Post-Emancipation Virginia, and it's published by the University of North Carolina Press and jointly with Fulcrum. So you have two editions that you can access and look at. Uh, It's available on the uh, University of North Carolina Press website. It's also available on Fulcrum. I did look at that one, and it's really easy to find and to get. It's available from the normal places, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and if you'd like to try to support your brick-and-mortar bookstores while we are closed down in the pandemic, uh, check out bookshop.org, and you can order the books from the brick-and-mortar, and and they'll come straight to your door. Nicole, thanks so much for taking the time, and and best of luck with the next, next projects. Great. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you for having me. This was fun.